Hey, this is Christina. And this is Jess. If you enjoy stories about ghouls, ghosts, goblins, and everything in between, then join us on Ghouls Gone Wild as we explore haunted locations around the world and tell our favorite scary stories. New episodes are released on the 1st and 15th of each month. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or at ghoulsgonewildpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ghouls Gone Wild Podcast. Spook you later. Hi, everyone. Your weekly podcast bringing you gruesome tales from the murderous world of music. It's pretty cutthroat. It is literally. Literally. Cutthroat. (laughs) So there's that. Yep. And we are your two true crime loving hosts. I'm Maggie. I'm Ashley. And this week we are bringing you guys stories of true crime from the music world. Basically taking our two most favorite things in the world, music and true crime, and putting them together. Just smushing them Honestly, in this amazing sandwich. Yeah. We could probably do an entire podcast series just about music, true crime, and I would fucking love it. Yeah. There is there is a lot of Oh, it. yeah. A ton. A lot of stuff that people already know about, and some stuff you might not know about. Yeah. So... I think we both picked things that are off the beaten path. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I, some. One of my stories is pretty well known, but the yeah. other one I didn't know about. I don't even fucking know how I ran into it. I just found it and said, "Wow, this is." I got learned about this, <laughs> huh? Guys, half this podcast is just us being like, "Hey, this looks real cool. I'm going to talk about this." Okay, you do that. That's, yeah, pretty that's really, much. It's really how we I'll do make sure episodes. I don't talk about the same thing. Yeah, okay. that's about it. And I mean, yeah, we're totally using Halloween month as an excuse to just talk about scary things and true crime. Because I think it's a good excuse. <laughs> right? But I mean, that's it's kind of something we're really into. So while I think the market is a little oversaturated. A little bit. A little bit. I still think it's fun. Yeah. And we're doing a little musical twist on it. Things you might not know. It's like, you know, being VH1, but way cooler. We're way cooler in VH1. Because we're not 40 we're, yet. We're deeper than VH1. Yeah. And I mean, we don't know Flava Flav or Brett Michaels or New York. Yeah. Or, yeah, we, okay. We don't, we don't, we don't have nothing but I kind of shows. had to think for a second to and figure out who those people were. And then I remembered <laughs> and memories came back and now I'm traumatized. So thank There you. was a moment in my life where I was infatuated with those shows. On VH1. I watched all of them. Flavor of Love, Rock of Love. I did. I love New York. (laughs) I did watch two seasons of uh, Rock of Love. Two whole seasons I Charm School, which was the spinoff of Rock of Love. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't see that one. Yeah. He was trying to teach all those nasty girls to be good girls. Brett Michaels was? 
Uh, no, it was another person. Oh, okay. It was not from. I'm like, this is highly inappropriate. Yeah, I don't. All of it was highly inappropriate. Yeah, we had (laughs) problems. VH1 had problems. VH1, this doesn't work. And I don't even know what they do now. I don't know. I know VH1 Classic is still on. And they play La Bamba like all the time, right? Probably. Probably. Because why wouldn't you? I feel like all they did was play La Bamba, Purple Rain, and Rocky Horror. Yep. That sounds about right. Yeah, every Halloween, Rocky Horror. Yeah, every like day. 24-7. Kind of like TBS with the Christmas story during <sighs> Christmas. The difference is one of those is good. You know what? I don't like a Christmas story. Come for me. I, n- I don't give two shits about it at all. So I never people love it. I never watched it when I was a kid. But like National Lampoon's Christmas oh, Vacation, that's, that's that a must one. See. I like that one. And I just, I am very jaded towards Christmas because my birthday is two days before Christmas. Mm. I always get fucked out of everything. The last few years have been great. Thank you, my friends. Yeah. You feel great about it. That's also because none of us give a shit about Christmas and we'd rather just go out drinking with you at a dive bar. The hurt runs deep. It runs deep. Even as I got, a child. I got fucked over a lot when I was I knew, a kid. I knew. Don't have a birthday near Christmas. No. And also, both of us can sympathize or empathize that winter birthdays fucking suck. You never get to have a pool party. You don't get to have a pool party. You don't get to have any kind of fun outdoor party. No. And honestly, there's probably a snowstorm on your birthday. Yep. And then you don't get to have any fucking party. And for a solid, like, seven years in a row when I was a kid, I had the flu. Oof. Every single year on my birthday and Christmas. Yeah, that's so, yeah. fun. Ooh. That's Christmas birthdays time. are great, guys. Anyway, wow, well, we really went on a tangent about that. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Before we get into it, just want to shout out for tonight's menu of a beer of choice. We are drinking The Devil Made Me Do It by Dewclaw. Again, Dewclaw. Oh, so good. They it's are real good. Thumbs up. Four thumbs up from these ladies. We love you guys. Oh, my God. Can't get enough of it. And my favorite is on the bottom of the carton. It says it was aged in hell on wood bourbon barrels. That's my kind of beer. Yeah. As I started drinking, I'm like, oh, it's a nice sour, but there's something to it. And I just kept drinking until I figured it out. Oh, it's whiskey. It's, it's a little funky. It's a funky sour. Yeah. I like I it. I like it. It's I like different. Funk. Because that's what Duclaw does. Yep. Fucking drink Duclaw. Do it. <laughs> it's really good. You're not going to be disappointed. You will not. And I guess with that, let's fucking roll into it. Let's get into it. Let's do this. Get ready for some true crime stories in the world of music. And I will kick mine off with the tale of Jim Gordon. Mm, do tell. All right. The timeless song Layla is attributed to Eric Clapton as it was released during his time with Derek and the Dominoes. We all know the story. It was written about his unrequited love for George Harrison's wife, Patty Boyd. Who he eventually hooked up with. We, they married. Didn't they? I don't remember. <laughs> I, we drink a lot, guys. We went over this like five times. Yeah. I don't I don't think they did. At least expect us to go over it five more times. Yeah. Yeah. However, Clapton did not write the entire song. Oh. That beautiful piano coda at the end. You can thank drummer Jim Gordon for that one. Not something you would expect from the drummer. Yeah. No, you wouldn't. However, Jim Gordon, very different. On a lot of levels. (laughs) Buckle up. Jim Gordon was an accomplished drummer that played in many well-known bands as a session musician, as well as being in a few of his own groups. He was a kind soul with a promising career and the talent to back it up. Unfortunately, misdiagnosed mental illness would be his tragic downfall. Hmm. 
Jim was born in 1945 and grew up in San Fernando Valley area of L.A. When at age eight, he said he wanted to learn drums. His parents encouraged him and paid for lessons. And family life was polite and they were well-respected members of the neighborhood. But like most suburban families, there was a dark secret to be had. Ooh. What is it? (laughs) What is it? (laughs) Well, their patriarch was an alcoholic. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's not that crazy. His mother, Jim's mother, Osa, kept the family together for years before her husband finally got himself into Alcoholics Anonymous, probably when Jim was about in high school. Okay. But Mr. Gordon wasn't the only one with problems to reckon with. Jim himself had issues with insecurity that led him to overeating, which of course made him more insecure about his heavier weight. That's kind of an interesting psychological issue to have with not only a male, but back then, when is this, 50s, 60s? Yeah, probably like mid um, late 50s, early 60s, I would say. Because you would certainly see that with women. Oh, yeah. At this point time period Seriously. or any time period really it's more yeah. associated with with, with women still so, happening guys yeah still happening everywhere <laughs> but yeah that's something you don't really see yeah with men so that's kind of interesting it was very interesting he was the younger of two brothers i don't know if that played a part maybe, maybe. but this is also the time period of processed food and tv dinners oh yeah and people did not understand how Horrible that worked. shit and how calories worked. <laughs> like how calories yeah. worked. <laughs> Carbohydrates was not a word. No, that was oh man. To be alive in the 50s. She says as she chugs a beer. Yeah, it's worth it though. Mm-hmm. Well, in addition to all of this, he heard voices from a young age. Oh. Voices that were a comfort to him in times of stress. So when he was a kid, he went to eating in the voices. Okay. So he's a little kind of a chubby kid hearing voices. All right. Many overlook this behavior as just a kid with imaginary friends and a wild imagination on its own. And as he approached his teenage years, the voices lessened, as well as his insecurities. Playing drums helped immensely as he began to play with symphonies and youth bands, giving him opportunities to tour places around the world. So he's he's doing just fine in high school. Something to focus on. Right. This guy was motivated and had the ability to do whatever he wanted with his talents. When the time for college came, he was granted a music scholarship at UCLA, but instead he turned it down to go to LA to begin his music career as a session drummer. He got picked up quickly, and before he knew it, he was touring England with the Everly Brothers. When it was over, he went back to session work and even squeezed in some time for junior college. And Jim was already had major cred in the industry. He was raking in the dollar dollar bills and even married a lovely dancer named Jill. But after five years, things didn't work out, and they divorced right before Jim went on tour in England with Delaney and Bonnie, which was where he met Eric Clapton and Bobby Whitlock. Hmm. I'm calling him Whitlock. 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 His relationship with Delaney and Bonnie didn't last long either, as most of their backing band left to go tour with Joe Cocker. Oh. And this was the stereotypical drinking, drugs, and girls kind of tour. And here Jim was exposed to that hard and fast rock and roll lifestyle. He was bigger than most of the guys that he was with. He's 6'4", and he wow. wasn't fat by any means. He just had a big build. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he was big years. boned. Yeah, but like legit big boned. Yeah. I If you look at pictures of him from this time, you would never say he was fat. He's just... He's just a big guy. Yeah, he has a large presence. You're like, ooh. 
What you like, six four boy? <laughs> Can you, you give me a bear hug? Yeah. He's that kind of guy you want to walk up and be like, mm, yeah. Can I just hug you for a little Don't bit? Don't stop hugging me. <laughs> God, I love it. Especially if it's cold. Especially if it's cold. There was one who didn't really care for Jim's drug use, though. The voices. They were still in the background of his life, simply murmuring to him so quietly that it was easy to ignore. Life was going far too well for him to pay attention to that. And in addition to his professional successes, he was in a wonderful relationship with Rita Coolidge. The two would spend most of their time together hanging out and making music. Mm -hmm. So yeah, life was good. Well, all good things must come to an end. And the beginnings of this came when Jim and Rita were on tour in New York. Jim asked Rita to come into the hall of the hotel and she assumed he just wanted to talk. And that assumption was quickly proven wrong when he punched her point blank in the face for no reason oh at all. Oh my god. It was with that that Rita broke things off between them. With Fuck yeah, she should. Yep, with only a black eye for the rest of the tour to show for it. Holy shit. Jim was exceedingly apologetic and tried so hard to get her back, but she outright refused him. So, lessons, people. If someone hits you even once, don't, don't go take back. Them back. <laughs> and as you will learn, Rita was very smart to not go back. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. She could have landed herself in a shit ton of, of trouble. Trouble. Yeah. Bad news. So, let this be a lesson, guys. Don't go back. You're better than that. You can do what you want. Yeah. You're strong, independent people. This didn't stop the upward trajectory of Jim's career, however. He still worked with other impressive musicians like George Harrison and even started a band called Derek and the Dominoes with Eric Clapton, Bobby Whitlock, Carl Rattle, and Dwayne Allman. Dwayne Allman was in that? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Facts. Hey, facts. We got them. We learn yourself something. <laughs> Hope you all go home today and feel proud that yeah. you know that Dwayne Allman was in Derek and the Dominoes. Who knew? Not me. But now you do. They released one album in 1970, Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs, which upon its release was a flop. It wouldn't be until years later that people discovered the gems to be had in it. Gordon may have been crucial in helping Clapton write Layla, but he said he never got paid for the song as the producers assumed he'd be dead in six months because of the heavy drug and alcohol use. Oh, that's nice. In the 60s? F- the faith that they have in in their musicians is real. That's real good. It's a good faith, guys. But yeah, I mean, Layla is always attributed just to Eric Clapton. Yeah, I, d- I didn't even realize it was done when he was in Derek and the Dominoes. Yeah, I didn't either. I just thought it was Eric Clapton's song. Yeah, I and honestly, I think actually thought that Layla was a cream song and it's mm. not there is another one that is always associated with eric clapton that's his acoustic version no the live one i hate that version by the way the um the new. unplugged version yeah. Layla <laughs> got me on my knees Layla. no it sounds that's like you're about Layla. to t- it sounds like you're about to take a nap Old, yeah, like old he, man. He old man like Clapton. Old man, old man Napton. <laughs> old man Napton. Go yeah. take a nap. I don't want it. I want you, you can't do Layla right rocking now. out on Layla. That's what I want. I don't want you sleeping on it. I yeah. want you rocking on it. Yeah, but I actually always thought that song was a cream song, but it's not. Granted, they Clapton played has it. been in so many fucking yeah, bands. Right? You, I think, are allowed to think that that song came out whenever the fuck you want because <laughs> Clapton. Yeah. 
Pretty in much. a lot of bands. <laughs> well, even with that, though, according to Bobby Whitlock, it was actually Rita Coolidge that wrote the piano part, not Jim. Others say it was a song they wrote together, but regardless, a similar melody appeared on her sister Priscilla Coolidge's album a few years later. So who's to know? Who knows? We do know that Derek and the Dominoes was a mess, though. <laughs> The band were drug addicts on a whole, and there was a lot of infighting about money and the direction of where they were supposed to go musically. They were dissolved by 72, so they really were only together for about two or three years with one album release. Also, they were friends with the early uh, rendition or whatever of Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. So they were all good friends. Yeah. Doing drugs, drinking. Yeah. Being, trying to be bluesmen. Getting into some shenanigans. All that good shit. And a little side note, I'd like to say that Rita Coolidge not only didn't get back with Jim, but then upgraded to marrying Chris Christopherson. Oh. So go he had you. nice hair and a nice beard. Yeah, he upgrade. did. Upgrade. <laughs> Total upgrade. <laughs> well, despite the downfall of Derek and the Dominoes, Jim just kept working. He was using drugs and drumming as a way to drown out any stray voices that were trying to break through. He worked on high-profile albums like John Lennon's Imagine, Frank Zappa's The Great Wazoo, and Carly Simon's You're So Vain. Damn. He's got a lot of accolades under his belt. And at this point, god damn, he had to be like maybe about 30? Yeah. What have, what have we done with our lives? Not that much. Yep. <laughs> hey, we have this podcast. We do. Yay. <laughs> Throughout this time, he was on and off drugs, and ever so slowly, his personality began to change. Most attributed this to the substance abuse. No one knew about the voices in his head. But, like, drugs don't... Do drugs really make your personality change that dramatically? Yes. I would assume so. Yeah, but, I mean, I think you have to be really fucking strung out. I I feel like there's a difference between... When you're high on coke or whatever drug you happen to be taking Mm -hmm. and genuine psychosis. I agree. I think that there was a difference. But but granted, nobody is like trained to know the difference. Yeah, especially in the music industry. Right. And they were fine to just ignore whatever was going on with Jim so that they could just make more music. Yeah. His insecurities were expanding into full-blown paranoia, and none saw that better than his second wife, Renee. One day she came home to find Jim with a menacing look in the kitchen, where he told her, quote, I know what you're doing. And when she responded with confusion, he told her about the magic triangle she used to bring evil spirits into the house. Oh. Then proceeded to punch her in the torso and crack several ribs. And with that, their marriage was over after only six months. Wow. Yup. And that's, I think, where you can tell the difference between a drug addict and someone who's going through actual psychosis. Right. A drug addict, maybe while tripping, is going to talk about a magic triangle. But if someone's stone cold sober saying, hey, hey, I know what you're doing. And then proceeds to punch you in the gut. Then you're, you're, I think you're dealing with somebody who's got some problems outside of substance abuse. It makes me wonder if either of his wives really saw anything. Yeah. It's hard to tell. As far as I could tell, his first wife, wife, Jill, he didn't seem to have any outbursts. I think their divorce was just a difference in Mm -hmm. lifestyles. Okay. Well, if she wasn't a musician, she wasn't down with 
you know, touring and whatever, then I can understand. Right. That's and they had a his kid entire and stuff, life. so I think that their divorce was different. Right. And he was still young and not having the problems he had been having at this point. Now people were talking, though. His behavior had become erratic and ex-girlfriends spoke of his violent ways. Again, many turned a blind eye so they could work with him or just chalked it up to good old-fashioned addiction. Mm -hmm. This was, after all, the 70s. And we didn't think much of mental health yet. Right. So that's and everyone was on drugs, so that is the excuse for everything. Exactly. And other people would probably just go on drugs to ignore what was happening to Jim. Right. So... But the random phases in which Jim would go from being okay to being unhinged should have spelled out a much bigger problem. Right. And and that's the thing, too, is these were bizarre phases that had no real timing to them. You couldn't chalk it up to, oh, he's drunk or, oh, he's high. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he would do it sober. Sometimes maybe drunk. It's just there was no rhyme or reason. Mm-hmm. So somebody, I guess nowadays, would have been able to tell, but maybe in the 70s, you just couldn't. The voices were many. But the loudest always came to Jim in the form of Osa, his mother, trying to tell him what to do, control his life. If he was eating too much, they would force him to starve himself. They would also tell him of supposed plots being put against him. Oh, boy. Yeah, because voices. One night on the voices command, he choked his girlfriend, Stacy Bailey, while she was asleep. After she convinced him to let her go, Jim just rolled over laughing, saying he was joking. Oh no! Oh yeah! And, oh and, no, bitch! And she that proceeded. Ain't a joke. She proceeded to leave him as well. Here's the kind of the comforting thing: is it seems that the women who were with Jim only needed one time to be like, yeah. "Nah, I'm out." They were smart enough this. and like comfortable enough comfortable to leave. Comfortable enough to leave. So felt secure enough in their decision to yeah. leave. And it's unfortunate that a lot of women don't feel that. Yeah, like women and men or anybody. I don't I don't care how you identify. If somebody hits you again. Last okay. week's last week's PSA was don't touch children. This week's PSA is <laughs> don't hit your wife. But if somebody period. hits you, fucking leave. Yeah. Like don't even give them a second chance. They don't deserve it. No matter how much they apologize or say they'll never do it again, it's going to fucking happen again. Cuz for all you know, they could have some deep mental issues that are going unaddressed. Either way, whether they do or not. Oh, I know, but don't I mean, fucking stay. It'll it could it could very well happen again. Yeah, probably will. So don't just just leave. <laughs> it was only a matter of time before this would begin to come out in a professional setting. Once, when he was working on a session for Johnny Rivers' outside help, he began to glare at guitarist Dean Parks and accused him of messing with his time, saying that he was moving Jim's hands. Dean, what? had worked with Jim many times before. He was rightfully confused by this because how the fuck can I touch your hands, man? I'm only playing guitar. Well, the more things of this nature happened, the less work Jim was being offered because now he has a reputation. Well, because now the dudes in charge are fucking creeped out, and now we gotta pump the brakes on it. And he's probably being difficult. Yeah, being fucking weird. So nobody wants to work with him. Exactly. And if other musicians, other session musicians don't want to work with him, then your shit's not going to get recorded. Exactly. And your money's going to be wasted. And years have passed. He, there are probably more up and coming drummers. And there was a paranoia that Jim had about that, about right. who's coming up now? Who's going to be better than me? Because session musicians, there's a lot of them. There are. And they're, and all- they're usually 
really fucking good. And they're hungry. And they need work. And there's more session musicians than there is work. Yeah. So if you're a really good session musician and you're going bonkers and nobody wants to work with you. Yeah. There's like 20 other session drummers that are just lining up waiting to take your jobs. And he knew that. Yeah. Right. And he And they're just as good as he is. Yeah. And then of course that doesn't work well with his paranoia. Right. So the voices getting just louder. Get worse. Only getting worse. He could grab some low paying work for TV and commercials here and there, but overall Jim was becoming a recluse. His mother voice became so dominant in his mind that he started calling her to tell her to stop it. She had no idea what she's he was talking still alive. about. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> and she's over here thinking, what are you talking about? I'm, what? So she started to worry for her son, obviously. Mm-hmm. She had him check into the hospital, and doctors were never really sure what was wrong with him, so they just diagnosed him with alcoholism and treated him for that. Oh, that's not right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was wrong. And he would check in and out of hospitals about 14 times over six years. Wow. Mm, it was a lot. At one point, he attempted suicide by overdosing on sedatives prescribed to him. You know, and sometimes Jim could just manage to work some gigs. But the voices had gotten so bad that they were telling him to turn down jobs. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. So the voices had gotten to this point that said, Hey, you know what? Just tell him you don't want to go. Just sit in the house. And at this point, he had accumulated enough money that he didn't really have to work. But still. Right. I mean, it's not a good thing. And it should have been a red flag to a lot of people. Yeah. He even turned down a gig on Bob Dylan's tour. Oh, that's a mistake. Yeah. And he said it actually physically hurt him to do it. But the voices were so loud saying, tell him no, tell him no. But at the same time, can you imagine what would have happened if he did go on that tour? It's hard to tell because it seemed that when he kept busy, wasn't as bad. But Yeah, true. But when he's sitting in his house drinking, yep. doing drugs or whatever, it's probably when they're the worst. Yeah. His outbursts became more strange. He would go into hospitals with physical pain only to discover that it was psychological. Then he'd run down the halls screaming, let me go, to no one in particular. When he would leave the hospital, he would immediately go to his mother as per the voice's instructions. Mm-hmm. And the lines between real mom and voice mom had all but disappeared. That's so weird. Yeah. And she was beginning to fear for her safety, so she moved in with her other son, John. One night in June, she received a call from Jim that she was once again bugging him and that he was going to kill her. Oh, and she called the hospital that he frequented and found out that he had just checked himself out that day. So it, it timeline works out. Oh, yeah. he's out of the hospital. The first thing he does is contact me. Right. Now, John and his family were away, so Osa couldn't let them know what was going on. And she, while she was worried, she still just said, all right, well, I'll just tough it out. I'll shrug it off till the morning. Yeah. Whatever. And later that night, she received another call from Jim And again, she just denied his accusations. But it wouldn't do any good this time. Jim drove to her home, knocked on his mother's door, and when she answered, he beat her with a hammer. And after she fell to the floor, he stabbed her in the chest with a knife. Holy shit! He killed her by what he claimed were her own instructions. What? He said the mother voice in him said, go and kill me. And so he went to her house and killed her because, again, 
he could no longer differentiate yeah. voice mom, real mom. He thought it was the same. Wow. So he murdered his mother. And then when the police came to his house just to tell him, they didn't even think he did it. They were just going to tell him, yo, your mom's dead. Yeah. He's just curled up in a ball, crying, covered in blood. And they're like, oh, oh. got it. <laughs> oh, hey, I found the missing puzzle piece, guys. You fucked up, guys. You really fucked up. After his arrest, doctors finally gave him the proper diagnosis of schizophrenia, and the courts found him guilty of second-degree murder, putting him away for 16 years to life. He is still serving that sentence today. Rarely does Jim leave his cell, and he refuses his medications. I can't help but feel like this is a huge failure on the medical uh, institution. I'm going to blame primarily the medical institution, secondarily... The music industry. Yes. Because they probably saw things and and just didn't and chose to ignore it because, well, I want him to be on my record. He can make me money. Yep. But yeah, I mean, if he was in and out of institutions and shit 14 times in six years Mm -hmm. and nobody diagnosed him as schizophrenic, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. I know it was the 70s, but come on, guys. But somebody's got to do something. They knew what schizophrenia was. Yeah. But that also goes to show the type of things you can get away with when you're rich and white and right. powerful. He would check himself out. Yeah. He never was released. He would check himself out. And you can do that when you're in Hollywood rehab places. Mm-hmm. So nobody's stopping him. Not even the doctors. I'm sure they strongly advised against it, but. But nobody's going to physically restrain him. No. No, it's, it's just not doing him any good. Right. Well, he hasn't shown any violent behavior since 2001, but even so, both his attorney and daughter say he shouldn't be released. And it doesn't even matter because he won't even attend his parole hearings. Right. He wants to die there. Yeah. In 2017, he was once again diagnosed as schizophrenic, but also suffering from delusions, a heart condition, and an enlarged prostate. Jim Gordon is now 73 and will likely spend the rest of his life in jail. It sounds like he's probably not going to be very much longer for this world. No. And I think between knowing that and just the mental state that he's in, he is. Yeah. 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 Well, that's that's Jim Gordon. That's sad. Yeah. It's 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 sad sad. that, like, he could have gotten proper diagnosis if it right. was just a different decade. And he was so well known for not just being a talented musician, but also being a really nice guy. Everyone yeah. really liked him. He was this handsome teddy bear t- kind of guy and lovable and funny. But once the schizophrenia really laid into him, there was no turning back from it, unfortunately. Yeah. And that makes sense, too, because usually about, I think it's about mid-20s when most really... When that's when Heavy it really stuff. kicks into gear. Yeah, bipolar, schizophrenia, things of that nature really kicks itself into 12th gear there. Yeah. So, yeah, unfortunately, Jim Gordon didn't uh, have the promising life he should have had. It started out good. It started out great. <laughs> he had such a fucking yeah. promising career. Well, Didn't get to have it. Let's move on to our next one. Yeah, I'm we? sure it's uplifting and yeah. wonderful. Jim All right. Gordon. So we're um, going to come back to the modern era a little bit. Bringing it back. Bringing it bringing it back to the future. Partying like it's 1999. Well, a little more 2006. recent. 2006. Almost. <laughs> yeah. So, the first one I'm going to talk about 
is Tim Lambesis from As I Lay Dying. Sure. Those are <laughs> names in bands. I'm I think I'm pronouncing his last name right. If I'm not, I don't really give a shit. It's Lambesis for all intents and purposes right now. All right. Tim Lambesis is the lead vocalist of the Christian metalcore band As I Lay Dying. Oh my Now you know. God. Now you know. Now I know. <laughs> and right. back in 2013, he was arrested for and convicted of hiring a hitman to murder his estranged wife. Oh no. You don't do that, bro. Again. Don't she left. <laughs> leave her alone. Just you leave know her alone. It's part two of our PSA. If they leave, leave them the fuck alone. Leave her the fuck alone, bro. The fuck alone. She didn't ask for this. Yeah. Tim was a founding member of As I Lay Dying, which formed in San Diego in 2000. Although the band started out as a Christian band, writing most of their lyrics based on Jesus and his teachings, the beliefs of the band now, I would say, are kind of murky. Oh, okay. I'm not entirely sure which band members still have the faith and which ones are solidly atheists. Oh. I don't even think they know. Okay. But we'll get into it. But aside from religion, Tim had three other interests. Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> okay. Bodybuilding. Well, and, that checks out. And his family. He actually has a side project. Oh, no. That is a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, tribute band. It's called, I'm, it's called Austrian Death Machine, I believe. I'm not going to lie. I'm... I'm morbidly interested. Really? Yeah. Way more interested in that than As I Lay Dying. Yeah. Me too. Way more. Yeah. He married his wife, Megan, in 2004, and they adopted three children from Ethiopia. Oh. Which is a fairly noble thing to do as a Christian yeah. couple. Yeah. That's that's actually what it means to be a fucking Christian. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. This is what you do. Yeah. You know what? Respect. Yeah. But around 2012, things started to fall apart. He started making Tumblr posts about some lyrics on the As I Lay Dying album that was just released that year called Awakened. He expressed some dissatisfaction with Christianity and how contradictory it seemed to be, saying it's, quote, very difficult to outline exactly who it is that's worth siding with and, quote, Protestant and Catholic denominations have poisonous roots. I mean, I kind of agree with most things that he's saying. However, Tumblr... Are you 12? <laughs> yeah. Also, what porn are you looking for? Woof. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in August of that year, Tim sent an email to Megan that contained a triple roundhouse kick to the face. Not only did he tell her he didn't love her anymore, he also renounced his faith in God and told her he cheated on her. In an email. <laughs> This is your wife. This ain't your high school sweetheart. Yeah. What are you doing? Email. Wow. Not even a text message. It was an email. Damn. I got broken up over email once. That shit is rude. Oh, I've gotten broken up with over text. Like, fuck you, man. Yeah. Also, give me my shit back. Yeah. Mostly give me my shit back. (laughs) Within weeks, they were separated and Megan filed for divorce a month later. Among the allegations thrown at Tim... Megan Megan claimed he was obsessed with bodybuilding, <laughs> neglected their children in order to spend more time at the gym, took last minute flights to Florida to engage in extramarital affairs, and spent thousands of dollars on tattoos. These are all legit. Yeah. Yeah. I completely believe it. This didn't sit too well with Tim. 
At some point shortly after Megan filed for divorce, Tim started asking around his gym if anyone knew someone who could he could hire to kill his wife. Stop. The gym. Is he in Planet Fitness? Tell me he's in Planet Fitness. It was a gym called Pure Fitness. Ugh. Pure Fitness, also Hitman. Yeah. Also, we can kill your wife. Also, murder. Pure Fitness, murky Plus murder. Plus murder. <laughs> That's your extra side benefit with the black card. Yeah, right? You go to pay the Massage no chairs, Hitman. Oh my God. <laughs> Yo, it's worth that $20 a month. Yeah, right? And you can bring a guest. It's kind of nice. (laughs) They don't get to ask for the hitmen, but they do get to come with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They get the massage chairs. (laughs) So he approached a trainer at the gym named Brett. He figured Brett might know someone because Brett was supposedly the gym's super secret steroid supplier. (laughs) He was already supplying illegal drugs to gym patrons, so maybe he had connections to a hitman. That is... Lot. That's that's logical. I guess though. it's a logical conclusion. That's a logical step. I would give him that. Now Tim wasn't exactly keeping his mouth shut about the plan. Brett testified that he'd already heard about Tim's marriage falling apart, and heard Tim saying how better off he'd be if his wife was quote taken care of. Oh my god! <laughs> Never say taken <laughs> care right? of. Everyone knows what you mean when you we say taken care of. We all know you're not getting her a butler. Yeah, we know you. You're not trying to find her a sugar daddy. Yeah. You're trying to kill her. Yeah. God Bro. Bruh. Bruh. Come on. Bruh. So Brett wasn't surprised when Tim approached him via text asking to meet with him, and the two arranged to meet at the gym parking lot on April 22nd, 2013. Tim wasted no time telling Brett why he was there. He wanted connections to someone that would kill his wife because, quote, he wanted to make sure that the kids had one healthy relationship instead of two bad ones. <laughs> Okay. Pretty clever. Yeah. That's pretty sure. clever. Okay. The two spoke for about 20 minutes, but Brett insisted he didn't know anyone that could help. But Tim was persistent and asked Brett to meet up again at Barnes & Noble two days later. Terrible places to meet. Yeah. Who meets at a Barnes & Noble to arrange a murder? Were they meeting in the Starbucks of Barnes & Noble? I imagine them meeting in the kids section, oh, sitting oh in the tiny God. ass little... Yes! yes! The little benches. These two... Big old bodybuilders oh, with metal or guys. Or they're near the bargain bin and they're just looking at those adult coloring books. <laughs> oh, that's sad. <laughs> so they met at Barnes & Noble and Tim went back into complaining about his soon-to-be ex-wife, explaining that she was keeping their children from him and insisted he toured constantly so she would have money. Oh, okay. Get that alimony, yo. But I mean, you are married. Sign that prenup. Right. Even though Brett didn't really know any hitmen, he broke down and told Tim he tried to find someone. But instead of helping Tim, Brett turned him in. But the police needed solid evidence in order to arrest him. Oh, my God. So they set up a sting operation. Oh, my God. This is amazing. (laughs) A San Diego County Sheriff's deputy went undercover as Red, a hardened hitman ready to help out the downtrodden metal singer. Terrible undercover name. That's such, like, of anybody's going to know that that's an undercover name. Hey there, my name's Red. I uh, hear you need your wife taken care of. Yeah. I'm a butler. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you wanted a hitman? I'm sorry. Sorry, I misunderstood. <laughs> I just want to make your wife some tea. I just really thought 
You wanted someone to make sure that her daily tasks were taken care of. <laughs> yeah, I'll do your wife's laundry. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. Because cool. that's what Red does. <laughs> Red does laundry. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> on May 7th, 2013, they met at the same Barnes & Noble where Brett and Tim previously convened and discussed the details of the murder plot. Tim brought pictures of Megan, her home address, the code to their security system, and $1,000 in cash as a down payment. Huh. They ga- he gave three dates that would be good for Red to kill his wife, <laughs> and he- as he would be with his kids on these dates and therefore have an alibi. He's smart. I guess. He's smart. I guess. <laughs> As for how Red would kill his wife, Tim told Red that the method was up to him. Tim immediately agreed to the $20,000 fee with no argument. Oh. I feel like 20000 to kill someone isn't That's enough. That's not enough. And really? I don't know if it's just because we're not in the biz of murdering people. But I'm like, at least a million or 500,000? Yeah, I was going to say, at least, I was actually going to go with at least like, say like 250K. If you're going to ask me to kill someone. Six digits at least. I need to make sure that I never have to kill another person again in my entire life. I think we're speaking of people not in the biz. What? We're not in the biz. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not, yeah. But yeah. Like, like I'm not in the business of killing people. So I'm going to one hit and I'm done. But, but I, I want to be set for life. If I was a hitman, I would call myself Blue Cyan. What's with the colors? Why not? Blue Cyan? You're just saying blue and blue. Your colors are blush <laughs> and blush. <laughs> but that's what I mean. I mean, I think it sounds cooler than red, though. Blue Cyan. Blue Cyan. I, I move like the wind. My name is Blue Cyan. I'm going to take care of your wife. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna make cradle her, bed. her. I'm gonna make her bed, and then I'm gonna cradle her and snuggle her in it. Yeah, I'm gonna take care of her. We're gonna take care of your wife. She's gonna be fine. She's gonna be ta- well taken care of. Don't worry, Tim. She's gonna be fine. <laughs> oh my god, man! I can't believe I'm getting paid twenty thousand dollars for this. She's a lovely person. It's like the lady who started a cuddling business, and now she's like super rich. Yeah, I remember when that happened, and I said no. I don't want to cuddle strangers. Don't That's cuddle gross. me. Thanks. Yeah. I'm good. So Red, of course, was recording this entire thing. He specifically needed Tim to say that he wanted his wife dead or wanted Red to kill her. But Tim kept saying he wanted her taken care of or gone or never to come back. Finally, at the end of the meeting, as Tim was walking away from Red, he turned around and said, just to clarify, just so you know, I do want her dead. Oh, my. (laughs) Very end. And he's like, and he's like, and Red said that he was like 20 feet away from him. So I just, he's like shouting this. By the way. Fucking kill her. Please kill my wife. (laughs) I want her dead. Did you hear me? Dead. D-E-A-D. Dead. (laughs) That same day, Tim was arrested on charges of solicitation of murder. Tim, you were so close. So close, Tim. You're an idiot. (laughs) You're a fucking idiot. 
He was held on a $3 million bail because he was deemed a flight risk and a danger to the public. Accurate. Yeah. He pleaded not guilty and his lawyer tried to argue that, quote, his thought processes were devastatingly affected by steroid use. Literally tried to blame this on steroids. While that might be accurate, he's doing steroids, which is still illegal. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've known anyone to try to intricately plan out the death of their spouse on steroids. Yeah. That roid rage is more of a, I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. So. Like. Doesn't check out, bro. You either have the planning of a murder or you have like a Chris Benoit situation. Ooh. And like Chris Benoit had a lot of other issues yeah, that yeah, he was yeah. not the dealing with. The brain issue I think was like right. number one. Right. And I'm sure he was also using steroids, but I don't think that made him kill his family. Yeah. I think it was the mental health issues. Yeah. So I don't think you can blame this whole entire episode with Timmy here. On steroids. Nice try, lawyers. Nice try, but no. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Close, but no cigar. Yeah. Tim was released on bail on May 30th after it was reduced to $2 million. Still. And was put under house arrest until the trial. But on February 25th, 2014, he changed his plea to guilty and was sentenced to six years in prison. All right. So. Only six. Mm. That's not a lot. No. No, it's not. Before that, while on house arrest, he made a blog post about his beliefs and where his worldview stood at that moment. Basically, he came out to everyone as an atheist, claims he'd been atheist for a long time, as were most of his bandmates, and that they'd all just kept pretending to be Christian in order to sell records. And naturally, the renunciation... That's not how record sales (laughs) work. Really, yeah. I'm pretty sure that if you stopped being a Christian metal band, you would probably get more fans. Yeah, I think that's how the metal scene works. Don't quote me on that. I think that's just how the music industry works because you have Katy Perry, who was a Christian singer and then became a crazed pop star, right? So I don't know. Just saying, you're doing it backwards, my friend. But he also said that the renunciation of his faith made it easier to cheat on his wife. So blame it on steroids and Christianity? Or maybe he's just a douchebag. That could be it. I'm going with douchebag. I'm going to go with that. Since the trial and his incarceration, Tim has once again flipped his beliefs and now claims to be a follower of Jesus Again. Fucking god damn it. And after serving only two years of his six-year sentence, he was released on parole on December 17th, 2016. (laughs) God damn it. God damn it. As of right now, As I Lay Dying is back together and touring and just released a new song in June of this year. Wait, so he's back in his band? Mm -hmm. Fuck them. If you are going out and paying for their concerts... Don't. Yeah. Sorry, I have no respect. You have better things to do with your fucking money than give it to that piece of shit. I really hope there's somebody who listens to that band, didn't know the story, and is like, oh, wow, I guess I'll stop doing that now because he's a piece of shit. Yeah. And I don't 
really think that they're that great to begin with. Um, oh, did you listen to some of the music? Yeah, it's it's fucking metalcore. It's mediocre at best. It's mediocre at best, and it. I just I don't uh, I don't like hardcore. I don't like metalcore. I think it's garbage. Sure. Shoot me if you want. Don't, but you know, <laughs> but don't. Yeah. Metaphorically, shoot <laughs> in me in the if context you want. of but this. Like, yeah, I just I don't get it. It's just, it's literally dudes just swinging their dicks around trying to, like, puff up their chests and be better than the other dude. It's, it's oh. stupid. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, sure, yeah. <laughs> you are so much more well-versed in the metal world than I am. You just say, hey, Maggie, you want to go to a show? And I'm like, okay. Okay. All right. I like music. I'll just go to things. Oh, oh, this is rowdy. I don't like Ooh. this. No, I like rowdy. I don't <laughs> like when it's not rowdy. I'm like, oh, they're all I'm very- fine. They're all very stoic. Yeah. And angry. I'm fine when it's rowdy. Just don't be rowdy near me. I'm done That's with fair. that shit. Too old for that shit. I'm too old for that shit. That's fair. But yeah. So As I Lay Dying is on my shit list. Yeah. As they should be. Yeah. And I'm, I am I never really liked them to begin with, but now I really don't like yeah, them. Yeah, this didn't this didn't do them this any favors. This didn't help. If I were his bandmates, I would have been like, you know what, Tim? We're good. We're going to actually just like, like Jared got a job in an accounting firm. He's doing really well. Yeah. So I don't think we're going to get back together. And also when he wrote that post when he was on house arrest about how he wasn't Christian and all the bandmates weren't Christian either. Oh, yeah. The bandmates came out and were like, no, we're definitely still Christian. <laughs> so we don't know what the fuck he's talking about. Right. But like, why would you want to work with him yeah Yeah. you can replace him if you really want to continue doing as i lay dying or you could just regroup and be a different fucking band they have another vocalist yeah but already in the band maybe tim was the one getting them that sweet christian pussy at the la quinta inn (laughs) la quinta la quinta (laughs) that's that's what i'm going with but either way stop listening to them they suck. Yeah, they're pretty. They're just not good to begin with. It's generic garbage. Yeah. You can do, again, you can do better. And you have choices. And you know what? If you want more choices in the metal world, I'm going to stick with the metal genre. Ooh. With the band, I think that pretty much everybody knows. If you if you don't, what rock are you living under? I forgot which one. I for- Did you even tell me who this was? Yeah, I don't remember. but it's okay. I don't remember. We we we're we're bouncing ideas back and forth. Yeah. So who is it? Well, all right. So in 1981, two brothers, Vince Paul and Daryl oh, yeah, Lance, <laughs> duh, <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> doo, doo, doo. <laughs> alcohol affects the memory. <laughs> the more you know, or forget, which mostly forget. <laughs> we, the more you forget, can we just have like. A fucking black hole instead of a star <laughs> that travels over us and it just sucks everything is, is the more you forget. Oh, please. That's more accurate for us. Alrighty. The two brothers, Vince Paul and Daryl Lance, who eventually added the moniker Dimebag to his name, mm-hmm. got a few guys together and started a little band that they called Pantera. In the early days, there were a lot of members coming in and out, but by the late 80s, they finally had their final lineup ready to go. They had a handful of successful albums and were a mainstay in the heavy metal scene. By the mid-90s, the band was having a lot of issues due to heroin addiction of the lead singer Phil Anselmo. 
In 2001, the band went on hiatus for an undetermined amount of time. However, after a plethora of back and forth with Anselmo about side projects, whether or not he was going to come back, the Abbott Brothers... Or the fact that he's a white nationalist, but you didn't hear that from me. I actually did not know that. He, there's a lot of uh, controversy he surrounding him. He seems like a problematic person. Oh, is he? And I, I, will, I, will, I will dip my toe in that in a bit. I mean, he's apologized for some of the things that the really shitty things he said and whatever. I am not a forgiving person, so I don't really believe it. I don't think you have to forgive a white nationalist. I mean, Axl Rose apologized for being a racist piece of shit, but and absolutely and homophobic, beating the shit out of many girlfriends and wives, and being a wife beater and being homophobic, and then would turn around and do the same shit over again. Yeah, so. I have a hard time forgiving you. Oh, Axel it does not get my forgiveness at all. Well, after all the fighting and all of this, the Abbott brothers just said, no, we're disbanding Pantera mm-hmm. indefinitely. That's what's just, that's what happened. Yeah. They went on to form a new band called Damage Plan. The brothers were excited about this new group and wondered what roads it would lead them down. But unfortunately, they would never discover what the future held for them, all because of a crazed fan. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all I'm going into with Pantera. Don't come at me. There's a huge Pantera story. We will cover it, I promise, but this isn't about Pantera. Yeah, Pantera deserves its own couple of episodes. Yeah, they have they have a lot. They're impressive, to that's say the least. That's all you. Yeah, I'll get on that. But, like, <laughs> eventually... Because there's a lot of bands. <laughs> yeah, I keep thinking of great ones to cover, and now I have a list that's yeah. like a page long. Yeah. Yeah, we got a lot going. Don't worry, guys. Don't you worry, kids. We'll get to it. Anyway, back to murder. <laughs> On December 8th, 2004, in Columbus, Ohio, 250 people gathered to watch a metal lineup consisting of 12 Gauge, Volume Dealer, Shadows Fall, The Haunted, and Damage Plan. While it wasn't the biggest crowd the Abbott brothers were used to, it didn't make the energy any less electric. Not present inside the club was Nathan Gale, a former Marine and blue-collar worker. He was sitting in his car, despite the cold, waiting for the headliner to go on. He didn't even watch the show? Nope. Wow. People would go up to the car and say, yo, bro, it's cold, you're gonna go in? He's like, nah, I'm not gonna watch shitty opening bands. (laughs) I paid for this ticket, and all I want to see is damage plan. That's all I want. At the time, Nathan was working part-time jobs such as construction worker, landscaper, auto mechanic, and even played offensive guard for a semi-pro football team, the Lima Thunder. While it was never officially released why exactly he was discharged from the Marines, many have speculated that it was because he was deemed mentally unfit. Okay. Because he was only in for maybe a year, a year and a half. He was not in for a long time. Friends and family had noticed a change in Nathan, but no one could claim to see the violent activity or feel threatened by him at any time. He confided in a friend that he was on medication, and they assumed he may have been bipolar. Later, it would come out, though, that he was schizophrenic. Because apparently I just want to cover schizophrenics today. Lots of schizophrenia in true crime. Yeah. Well, checks out. Yeah. Nathan started talking and laughing to himself and engaged in manic behaviors. He visited a local tattoo parlor daily and would frequently get piercings or ink, 
like two large custom tribal designs on his arms. Oh, woof. Because early 2000s. Duh. And that's what we did. <laughs> I'm really glad I didn't get a tattoo until the later 2000s. I remember a friend of mine in high school went balls to the wall <laughs> with this shit when he turned 18 and went to the, the tattoo parlor and at once got eight or ten piercings wow. and a tattoo. Too much. All at the same Too time. Much. And then he comes to school and he's like head to toe like swollen and red. Oh no. And like what did you do? Do you know how healing works bro? Yeah. Because it's ooh tattoos take a long time to heal. So do piercings. Depending on where you get them. They were mostly in his face but there were others. Oh no it's fine. <laughs> I won't elaborate. No. He got into a fight with the shop owner the day of the concert because he was told he needed to have a license to operate a tattoo gun, likely another pipe dream he developed. He tended to want to change his career path several times. This guy's only in his early 20s, mm -hmm. and he already at this point had held several different kinds of jobs. And, and couldn't make it in the military. Yeah. Hmm. So these are very... Obvious manic behaviors. Yeah. Many at the shop got a weird vibe and tried to ignore him. It was said that Nathan was particularly infatuated with one of the artists that played guitar in a band because Nathan loved guitars and metal music. His favorite band was Pantera, and his teammates said that on the bus to games, he would constantly have headphones in listening to their music. That's kind of scary. He, well, it's... It, at first glance, you would say, oh, well, that's just like anybody else who has a favorite band. But this guy definitely took it to another level. Yeah. Because this all cul culminates to Nathan explaining to friends that somehow Pantera had stolen songs that he wrote and were claiming them as his own. Um, no, yeah. probably not. Yeah. I'm going to go with no. Yeah, I don't think that was happening. But at the same time, he was very upset about their breakup. He viewed it as a betrayal because that band was his life. So he would say, wow, they're stealing songs from me, but also, wow, why did you break up? And it's like, you got some fucking mixed, mixed messages here. But it's like, it's the, the delusion that this band exists solely for him. Do they not? No, they hmm. don't. <laughs> hmm. But like, not only do they exist solely for him, but all of their music is about him and now they're stealing his songs. How and dare they? How dare they? But also, I love you. <laughs> One Just would cuddle me and I'll stroke your beard. Oh. <laughs> One would assume it was his love for Pantera that brought him to the concert that night. Lots of fans follow their side gigs of the bands that they love. So, makes sense. Yeah. But that night, when Damage Plan finally went on stage... I don't think you could call Nathan Gale a fan. As they were about to go on stage, Vinny turns to his brother Dimebag and says, Van Halen? And his brother high-fives him and says, Van fucking Halen in response. Because that was their code for letting the other know to get out on stage and have a damn good time. The mood was high. They That's were ready cute. to go. That's kind of cute. It is. Barely into their opening song, Breathing New Life, Nathan Gale ran out to the band from backstage. How did he get backstage? I don't really know. It, he just snuck backstage somehow. He went apparently right past security. I mean... 2004. I guess if it's a smaller venue, kind yeah. of like Irving Plaza, 
in New York City yep. or Gramercy Ballroom or something also in New York City. It's they're small. They're big enough to have a, a pretty sizable crowd, but also small enough where anybody on the crowd could slip by right. security and well, just run up the stairs on the side and, and this get is on Columbus, stage. Ohio. Yeah, this is even New York City, so it's probably a small little venue where the bathrooms are near the backstage area. Right. So, so people are always over there. Yeah. So people probably assume, oh, he's just looking for the bathroom. Whatever. Who cares? It's just a. It's clearly a Pantera fan. Right. Whatever. They're just being crazy. Well, some say they saw him yelling. Some say they heard him say something about Pantera. But everyone saw him shoot Dimebag Daryl in the head. Wow. Right on stage. Like, probably point blank. Point blank. At first, everyone thought that it was just part of the show. They heard this feedback. But then Vinny immediately said, this is not great. Yeah. It didn't stop there. Nathan continued to shoot erratically. Members of the crew attempted to disarm him, but no one could get him down. Finally, he took drummer Tech John Cat Brooks hostage, holding him in a headlock while others while he continued to wave a gun wildly at the crowd. Minutes later, Officer James Nigemeyer arrived on the scene, entering the building through the backstage door. The crowd directed him towards the stage, and from there he could see the madness ensuing. At first apprehensive, the officer quickly realized that there was not only a hostage situation, but that the shooter had no idea he was there backstage behind him. He took this chance and shot Nathan in the head. Wow. Stopping all of it. When all was said and done, four were killed, including Dimebag Daryl, venue employee Aaron Halk, head of security Jeff Mayhem Thompson, and audience member Nathan Bray. Both John, the hostage, and tour manager Chris Paluska were injured. Despite being celebrated as a hero, James Nigemeyer still suffers from PTSD as a result from that event. Oh, I can imagine. He has since quit the police force and now works a quiet civilian job. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people don't really talk about the lasting mental effects of situations like this on police. Yeah, but it's it's got to be terrifying. Yeah, they don't have coping mechanisms. He just walks that. into the situation and he has seconds to decide I need to stop this guy because he is going to kill someone else. He has a right. hostage. He has already killed. And he's clearly insane. And if I miss, I'm dead or a ho- the hostage is dead yeah. or I could shoot someone else. Holy shit. I wouldn't. No, I could never be a police officer. Like, I will give props to the police officers that do good work and sacrifice themselves because shit, man. Yeah. I can't do that. And what really sucks about an event like this is. As we were just saying, how did you get backstage? Well, no one was really paying attention. Oh, the bathrooms might be near there. Whatever. Now there's so much security. There's so much of a rigmarole to get into a show. And I don't know about you, but sometimes, and maybe it was because I just went to a show last week while researching this, I stop and think, like, if someone came in right now with a gun, they could kill all of us. Yeah. Easily. And this isn't shit that we had to worry about when we were back in those days. Because it just didn't really happen. Or if it did, it, it just happened. wasn't really covered. It happened. I think media just didn't cover it. Right. And then all of a sudden, when I, I would say like we were in our late high school years, maybe, maybe college, college yeah. is when they really started covering everything. Right. Every single shooting. Yeah. And even Scott Ian was in- interviewed from Anthrax. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how, you know, it's so fucked up that this happened because now 
I can't fully enjoy myself at a show because I can't You're always help. paranoid. I can't help but wonder if one of these people in the crowd might want to come up on stage and shoot us. Yeah. They were good friends with Pantera, so that had home really close for them. Yeah. And he says, you know, even somebody jumps on stage to stage dive or just dance and have a good time. And I'm like, get the fuck off the stage. I can't have you near me. Yeah. And he's like, I feel bad about that, but I can't. And any... I don't blame people for feeling bad about that. The show I just went to, a drunk person got on stage and wouldn't get off. She was just a drunk mess. But it's it's awful for the performers to have to deal with that and think at the back of their head, what if they have a gun? Yeah. What if they want to kill me? What if this? What if that? Yeah. It is kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I just went to a show, I think the same weekend you went to yours. I think the weekend before. Yeah. We went and saw um, Dark Tranquility and the singer of Dark Tranquility at on their last song, like he was standing at the, the gate that was separating the crowd from the stage. Mm hmm. Um, so he was standing there and everyone was losing their minds and like hugging him and whatever uh-huh. while he was performing. And then at the end of the song, he jumped up into the crowd and crowd surfed. Right. And it's like, I don't, I don't see that a whole lot anymore. You but don't. also, I'm kind of scared for you right, right? now. <laughs> like, and I could see all of security was like right there, like ready to catch him or holding on to him yeah. so people wouldn't drag him somewhere. And there's crowd surfers coming in and like kicking him in the face while he's Oof. performing. I'm like, dude, you're you're hardcore. Yeah. But yeah. it's like I give you props so much when you go into the crowd. But, but at I the would same also time, be I'm terrified for you. I would be terrified. What if someone tries to just hug you and not let go even? You yeah. Know? How do you deal with even just the awkward drunk people? Right. And, you know, kudos if you're doing it. But especially with like metal shows and stuff like that. Mm. Anybody wanted to come in there and shoot up the place? It's like shooting fish in a barrel. It really is. And yeah, it fucking sucks that we live in that kind of era now. But mm-hmm. and also too, getting older sucks because you're like, oh, I could die at any time now. Why can't mortality I be- is real? <laughs> Why can't I be like the carefree sixteen year old in the pit right now that doesn't give a shit about being punched in the face? Oh man, those were the days. I wished my only concern was getting punched in the face. Oh my god, seriously. <laughs> well, to tie it all in a nice little bow, um, many have tried to make sense of this. Who's to blame? Could it have been prevented? The best answer is that an unstable man was angry about his favorite band breaking up and decided to take revenge. But Vinny took one step further and lumped Phil Anselmo into the mix as well. Hmm. During the breakup, there was a lot of shade being thrown back and forth between yeah. Anselmo and the Abbott brothers. Uh, both of them were just saying shitty things. Anselmo was kind of a dick. In one so... interview, Phil claimed that Dimebag deserved to be beaten severely. Oh. Yeah. After the shooting, Vinny said, quote, That's the kind of shit that might incite the guy that did this to do the thing that he did. Wow. And so he kind Classy. of... Classy. But he kind of blames Phil. He kind of says maybe Phil shouldn't have been talking shit. And I, yeah. I, there, there's, there's an element of truth to that, I suppose. You always have to think about the things that you say when you have a platform because you don't know what a m- mentally unstable person is listening to you and taking right. your shit verbatim. Right. Well, after that, the two never came back together. While Phil attempted to mend the bridges he burned, it was too little too late. And now it can never be repaired as Vinny passed away June 22nd, 2018. Yep. So 
Pantera's story is a very sad one. Yeah, it is. So I've already given you spoilers for the day we finally cover Pantera. (laughs) Yeah. It's not great, guys. Sorry. But anyway, let's move on to our last one. Our final upsetting true crime story. (laughs) It is upsetting. And I'm sorry. It is. This is a sad story. It is. I'll try to make it quick. (laughs) (laughs) Make a band-aid. So this is the story of Mia Zapata. Mm. Mia Zapata and her story still haunts the Seattle scene to this day. It's upsetting. It is. Mia was one of the most popular and talented musicians to come out of the grunge scene, but sadly her story was cut far too short after she was found beaten, raped, and murdered in the middle of a Seattle street on July 7th, 1993. This is before... Kurt Cobain died. Mm-hmm. Um, in the midst of the riot girl movement. In the midst of the riot girl movement. This was before... Um, oh, what's her name? The one from Hole. Oh, my God. We keep forgetting her the name. The drummer? Yeah. Faf? Jennifer? God, I'm the wor- no, it's not Jennifer. Nope. I the, can't remember. The, the former drummer of Son Hole. of a bitch. The former yeah, drummer the of Hole we're died. <laughs> oh, no, she didn't die. So it must have been somebody else from Hole. Oh, oh the so, guitarist. The guitarist. Yes, the guitarist <gasps> from Hole died. Oh, yes. Fuck. That's what it was. Look, lots of people were dying. Yeah. And lots of people were angry. Mostly from drugs and stuff, but this was after, like, the first death of the grunge scene mm-hmm. happened, which was um, Stephanie Sargent from Seven Year Bitch. Yes. She died from an overdose, I believe. And this happened right after that. So Mia was a rising star in the Seattle grunge scene in the early 90s as the front woman of her band, The Gits. Yep. She was popular and well-respected as a musician, and a lot of her friends looked up to her for her fearlessness on stage. The Gits also gained a reputation as just a straight-up good band. Their first album that they released independently was doing well despite not having a record label, and they had just come off of a successful international tour, and they were about to release their second album. But tragedy would strike before they could see the album's release. On the night of July 6, 1993, Mia was out having drinks with friends at the Comet Tavern in the Capitol Hill area of Seattle. Mia's good friend Valerie Agnew, drummer and founding member of the grunge band Seven Year Bitch, remembered Mia being upbeat and happy that night. Nothing out of the ordinary. Of course. Around midnight, Mia left the Comet Tavern to look for her ex-boyfriend, Richard Jenkins, who was supposed to be at a rehearsal space in an apartment building about a block from the bar. When Mia realized he wasn't there, she went to visit a friend who lived on the second floor of the same building. She stayed with her friend until around 2 a.m., then told her friend that she was going to walk two blocks up from the apartment to to a gas station where she would call a cab. So she put on her headphones and left. And that was the last time Mia was seen alive. Her body was found by a prostitute roaming the streets around 3.20 a.m. Wow. She was in the middle of a street in the central area, a part of town that was known for shady drug deals and prostitution. So wait, that was only like an hour and a half after she had left? Or she was? 80 minutes. Wow. 80 minutes. Wow. Nobody has any idea what happened. That's such a in fucking the quick amount of time. And it's nothing. And the central area where she was found is over a mile and a half from the Comet Tavern. So no one knows what happened in that 80 minute span wow. between when she left her friend's house next to the Comet and when she was found in the central area. But it was clear something really horrible happened. Oh my God. 
When she was found, she was partially dressed with her sweatshirt bunched up under her arms, her hood over her head, and she was strangled with the drawstring of her hoodie. There was also bite marks on her breast, and luckily the police were able to get a very small saliva sample from it. Her wallet, tattered bra, and underwear were shoved into the pocket of her shorts. It was obvious that she had been raped, beaten severely, and then strangled to death, and autopsies confirmed this. They also confirmed that if she hadn't been strangled to death, then she would have died from internal trauma caused by such a brutal beating. Holy shit. Yeah, she was torn up. I knew she was strangled. I didn't realize she was beaten so severely. Yeah, so it was kind of a mercy that they strangled her because... Otherwise, she just would have had so much internal bleeding that she would have died a really slow, horrible death. Right. The police had very little to go on when trying to find her killer. Mia had a vast web of friends, acquaintances, and connections in Seattle's music scene, but the police were determined to interview everyone they could find because they were sure the killer was someone that knew Mia. Her ex-boyfriend, the one she was trying to visit the night she was killed, was their number one suspect. Of course. Of and course. That's, it's and that's a, how you should hit that stuff, too. Is It always... The the significant other is always the first suspect. Of course. Always. Especially considering they're exes. Right. And apparently he dumped her, and Ooh. she was taking it very badly. Okay. And she was kind of, like, searching for him to talk. Okay. So that's why she ended up at that apartment building. That's who she was originally trying to find. Mm -hmm. So the police were like, well, maybe he got really fucking annoyed. Right, right, right. And just lost it or something. But he was ruled out after he willingly gave a DNA sample, offered to take two polygraph tests and pass both of them and gave a solid alibi. And fortunately, they had that saliva sample. So I'm sure they had that to test against. Well, we'll get to that. Right. (laughs) (laughs) They even considered that the murderer could have, that the murder could have been the work of the Green River Killer. His MO seemed pretty similar to Mia's murder, and one detail in particular was compelling. Mia's body was found in a cross position that's legs straight and together with arms outstretched in a T-shape and was also found next to a church. Whoa. The Green River Killer was a religious fanatic, so this would have been a connection. But the police abandoned this idea when they realized there were more differences between Mia's murder and the Green River Killer than there were similarities. Mm. Right. I mean, there's always method and timing right. and placement. There's a lot that goes into it. Not right. just... Not just religion? Not just a T-pose. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the leads dried up and the police had nothing to go on. Some of Mia's friends pooled their money and hired a private investigator, and even though she had a few promising leads, still nothing came of it, and the case went cold. Then, in 2001, the Seattle Police Department was tasked with going through their cold cases. Wait, this is like eight years later? Eight years. Yep, eight years later. Wow, okay. Her friends were still trying to get things going. The private investigator was still trying to investigate things. The Seattle scene had this huge benefit concert to raise money to pay for the private investigator. And like Nirvana, Hole, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, they all played. They made a ton of money. But eventually those funds ran out too. And the investigator said that she would continue working for free 
because oh, she was right. so inve- she was so invested in the case that she wanted to keep going with it. Yeah, and I'm sure yeah, life goes on, but that will sit in the back of your mind mm-hmm. forever until it gets solved. If I were a private investigator and I did that much work on something, I probably wouldn't want to stop either. Yeah. I don't blame her. Good yeah. for her. Yeah, so the police department was going through their cold cases and they found the saliva sample from Mia's file that was never tested because in 1993, technology couldn't extract DNA from such a small sample. But 2001 had the technology, so they had it tested and were able to extract a full DNA profile from the sample. Wow. They entered it into the CODIS system, but unfortunately, they didn't get any hits. But in December 2002... The police got a call from authorities in Florida. There was a new law in Florida where burglary was now an offense that required convicted criminals to submit DNA. Okay, that is a random law, but I'll take it. So anybody that was on parole for a burglary charge had to submit a DNA sample. It's like someone's like, what's my Rolodex of keywords? Burglary? Mm, Yes, this one will go with it today, won't we? Send them a letter. <laughs> Burglary is the word of the Daniels. Please jizz into this packet and mail it back. Woof. <laughs> I think it's just saliva swabs, but you know, same. Lick this bag. <laughs> Give it back. Thank lick, you. Lick it. The Florida lab was processing a DNA sample from a guy named Jesus Mezquia when they found a match for him in CODIS. His DNA matched what was found on Mia's body. Oh. Snap. Shit. Ooh, you in trouble. Ooh, boy. Jesus Mezquia was arrested in Miami on in January 2003 and charged with first-degree murder. Good. The prosecution alleged that he drove up alongside Mia, abducted her, and raped and beat her inside his car in Ugh. a remote location, driving her back to the city and dumping her body. There was no religious significance to her position either. It was just the way her body ended up after Ms. Kia dragged her from the car and threw her in the street and ran and squealed his tires and drove away. Fuck you. DNA evidence went out and he was found guilty of murder, sentenced to 36 years in prison. Not long enough. No. And this was above the standard. As I'm pretty sure the normal first degree murder conviction came with a maximum of 28 years. What? Yeah. What? But the judge was convinced that the severity of the crime warranted a higher jail time. Yup. That's it. Finally. Yes. Thank you, you are right. Yes. You are, that is- judge, you are correct. <laughs> Things we don't get to say too often. <laughs> yup. That's it. Yep. Ms. Kia tried to fight this in appeals court, but for some reason he waived his right to do so. He took this all the way to the appeals court, but then for some reason and to the total confusion of his lawyers, he just decided like, no, 36 years is fine. (laughs) This is fine. This is fine. I'll sit here for 36 years. So the appeals judge had no choice but to uphold the 36-year sentence, and Ms. Kia went back to prison, and that's where he's been ever since. Still not long not enough. long enough. He Considering fucking the beat brutality her, raped of it, her, strangled her, fucking bite marks, fuck, she would have died from the beating anyway. Yeah. No. And mind you... Mia is, she was like tall, but she was skinny. She yeah, was lanky. She was, she was uh, wafy, right? Yeah. And this dude was 
six foot four, two hundred and fifty pounds. <sighs> like, yeah, Fucking he was huge. Dick. He alone. he would have killed her from the beating alone. Right. And this dude had so many priors. Oh, I'm it sure. is ridiculous. Well, then, doesn't that add up though? If if you're like not a first offense, shouldn't that add you up? You would think. You would think. Ugh. But I guess if the maximum is 28 years for first fucking degree murder, what is wrong with you, Washington? It should be at least 50. At least. At enough least. for you to die in that fucking prison cell. It's, it's so hard because cases like that make it really hard. I want to believe in prison as a place to reform. Oh, but, but in, not in America. Not in America. It's not, Not though. in America. It's not. In- it is a place to make money because it's America. <laughs> Money America. <laughs> Making it rain America. Ugh. Yeah, I fucking hate it some days. You want reform? Go to Norway. It's the only I place you're going to get it. I don't know if I want reform in Norway. <laughs> Norway, I don't know if I would put those two words together. Because, what's his face? Oh, Varg? Varg Vickernes? Varg is still a fucking white supremacist and shitty and not a great person. He hasn't murdered anyone that I know of I since guess, he but was I released from prison. I would say that he was reformed in prison. Oh, no. He was 100% hell-bent on not being reformed in prison. Yeah. He made a mockery of their prison system when he was in it. Right. He would love America's prison system. He really would, though. He would love it. Yeah. I, I'm just upset now. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that wasn't the story to end it on, but I don't know what would have been. What would have been appropriate? We don't know. I don't know. Maybe Tim. Just that so would we at can least that would have been funny. So we can at least just make fun of him, him getting his wife taken care of. Yeah. Sends her to the spa. She gets a little mani pedi. She gets a nice <sighs> facial, maybe some mud bath. There you go. He took care of his wife. He took care of her. He took care of her. By the way, I want you to kill my wife. Just in case just I wasn't Just to clarify, clear. just so you know. There we go. I do want her dead. Bringing this back up. Ending it on a ridiculous note. Tim Lambesis, you are a class act. Are you? Uh, I'm saying that with as much sarcasm as I can possibly muster. I hope muster. you can feel me being sarcastic. Because I'm doing as it? hard as I can. Because it's like a fog emanating from my my very core. Oh. All this sarcasm. I was wondering why it was getting so cloudy in here. Yeah, it's my sarcasm coming out. Mm. Dispensing from my Palpable. belly button. Mm. Salty. <laughs> I like it. Salty. Mm. Well, that's it for true crime this year, guys. Maybe maybe next October we'll uh, we'll hit up some more stories. Because, yeah, you're right. There were a fucking lot of them. Yeah, there were a lot. And I wanted to talk about more, but I didn't. So maybe next year. Yeah, I mean... There'll be more. We'll do it. Keep it up. And you'll hear them as long as you keep listening to us. As long as you don't get sick of us. Don't get sick of us. Keep listening. We're fun. We've got more stories. Someday we'll cover Pantera. Someday. Anyway, so thanks for listening. We appreciate you. And if you appreciate us, like listening to us, please go on to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star review. And in the review itself... You could say, like, hey, like, I don't love that you guys do this, but you said leave five stars, so I'm doing it. That'd be cool. We like that. Or, instead of giving us five stars, just give us a fiver. I could use it. 
I could totally use five dollars. <laughs> I am a sad adult. <laughs> yeah. I w- I would say that we are adults loosely. Loose adults. <laughs> yeah, that's the name of our TV show. Loose adults. Loose oh, adults. This is getting fresh. I don't that's know about some this. Cinemax stuff. Yeah, it is. <laughs> And uh, you want to follow us on social meds, you can hit us up on Twitter at Rock Candy Pod and Instagram at Facebook at Rock Candy Podcast and our website, www.rockcandypodcast.com. And we got one more week of Halloween left. It's going to be a good one. It is going to be a good one. Keeping it with that spoopy shit because you guys want it. You better want it. I want it. Spoop your pants. One more week to spoop your pants. Oh, yeah, God. sorry to make you guys spook your pants so much. I'm not. <laughs> I hope you're really, I mean, I might go buy some fucking stock in uh, Depends Underwears. Because we've been making people spook their pants like crazy. What, what? With that, party on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. Oh, party on, you crazy kids out there. <laughs> Bye. Bye.